Hello, this is Mike Biffle, creator of Thomas Was Alone and John Wick Hex, and you're listening to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 37 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on Sunday, June 21st, 2020. I am your host, Luke Lore, the insipid ghost. In this episode, we chat with Media Indie Exchange founder Justin Woodward about his experiences in creating The Mix and the recent Guerrilla Collective. We'll look back at EA Play's significance and the delay of Cyberpunk 2077. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XEP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. And we have a packed show for you. Really and truly, I have a wonderful interview with Justin Woodward later on in this episode that ran far longer than I was expecting, but Justin took me on a journey from creating the Media Indie Exchange, the mix, as it were, a small organization about getting developers uh, of indie games into the spotlight by way of connection through IGN and GameSpot and, and, and so, many, so many other places, all the way to the recent Guerrilla Collective and further. He also goes into and discusses a number of things about how the Black Lives Matter movement has impacted gaming in providing people of color, gamers of color, developers of color, more representation in their games and how to utilize funding therein. It was a wonderful discussion that really opened my eyes up to quite a bit more in the industry that I think is well worth your time to listen to. Um, the, the interview runs about an hour long. It'll be on the back half of the episode, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, and before we get to the news of EA Play and Cyberpunk and some of the topics that we have to break down, some incredible questions you wrote in, I do want to say a quick thank you to Bill Coniglio, uh, an, uh, an avid listener of the show who's always supportive. He offered me a suggestion for a Metroidvania Castle Royd style game called Omega Strike that was only 3 bucks during the summer sale for Xbox. And I said, what the heck, 3 bucks? I'll throw it down there. And I just this morning wrapped up getting the 1K on that game. It took me about seven and a half, eight hours uh, to play a Metroidvania style like shooting game. I had an absolute blast. So, Bill, thank you for that suggestion for Omega Strike. I really enjoyed Omega Strike. It was super cheap, super fun, and to get the 1K is always a good time. Uh, so thank you for that. And any other listener that wants to write in and let me know games that they think I should check out uh, and games that I would enjoy, please feel free to tweet me at insipidghost or email me insipidghost at gmail.com. Waiting in queue right now is West of Dead. I did get the code early, early enough to start a review, but uh, unfortunately, guys, just due to, to outside stuff in life, I wasn't able to get a review done in time for this episode. So you can look forward to a review of West of Dead. It's the, the twin stick Ron Perlman voiced shooter uh, that, that just came out and is on Game Pass now. You can look forward to my review of that next week. I do want to add on to my coverage of Disintegration from last week as well. I talked a lot about the game's single player, uh, things that I liked, things that I didn't. I think the game fell short in a lot of ways. Uh, but I did get to, once the servers went live, 
play the multiplayer of Disintegration, and I found that to be a far more enjoyable experience. So while I still have a lot of trepidation and concerns about this game uh, and where it goes, I think Disintegration's multiplayer is ripe with potential. I think the world that they are building is something special. My hope is that we see Marcus Leto and his 30-person team over at V1 Interactive continue uh, to work together because there's a lot of good things in Disintegration that going forward will be will be worthwhile for gamers to experience. So uh, take that for what you will. I just wanted to add on an addendum to my coverage of Disintegration for last week. I'm still playing the multiplayer uh, and having a good time with it, and that runs counter to my experience with the single player. And so I just wanted to give you guys a clarity on that one. On now to the news of this past week. As the dust settles on the PlayStation 5 event and gamers are uh, left with speculations looking at PlayStation 5 modeling and just how big it will be and and what the games and Miles Morales will do to the industry at launch time, Uh, the questions of what games are coming out in a launch window and how to set up a PlayStation 5 uh, launch event, what that means for those gamers going forward, uh, and the, uh, the obvious comparisons to what is Series X going to bring to the table. Well, Series X announcements are going to be waiting until July. Some speculation, of course, that it might be as early as July 2nd. That's exciting. It was EA Play, though, that took the spotlight in this past week as they hosted their annual non-E3 event, EA Play Live 2020 this 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 year. Uh, and a lot of announcements came out in that well-produced, well-organized show. I think that the EA Play show, if, you, if you've not seen it, it, it looked very good. It had some announcements that were, were good for the industry, good for gamers in a lot of ways, but it very much lacked the punch that you need to have in order to, to hear and, and feel a presentation during an E3 time. One of the difficulties of this 2020 year in games coverage is that during our our window of summer for E3 events, in lacking the ESA's E3 event, we now have a lot of smaller subsets of presentations, some by major first-party developers, some by third-party developers, some by way of the likes of GameSpot or IGN, some at the Guerrilla Collective, and we'll talk to Justin about that later on in the show. A lot of different events happening around means that there's a divide of announcements and where you want to place your information in order to occupy the most media space. And sometimes that's done well. Sometimes that's not done well. I think that was not done well with the the May Inside Xbox event. Great announcements, but lacked the punch. EA Play in this past week lacked the punch, despite some good news coming out. Lots of coverage about Apex Legends, which continues to to do extremely well in numbers across all platforms, and that's exciting because if you remember, the Battle Royale genre was dominated by Fortnite in such a way that it seemed insurmountable. And Apex Legends did a wonderful job at chipping away at some of that brand audience and allowing a new class of Battle Royale to to take hold of mainstream. Fortnite still very much exists, but now fans of Apex Legends are able to enjoy a steady stream of content. I believe they're now in Season 5. They've got crossplay coming to their systems. The Apex Legends, like many EA titles, are now arriving on Steam, which is a very big deal because EA had previously occupied all of its PC titles into the Origin space. Well, they've seen the, the, the light or made a business change. They ran the numbers, crunched the numbers, and they're bringing their games to Steam. This mirrors a lot of what Microsoft and Xbox have been doing 
in recent years and putting a lot of their first-party titles over on Steam. We see the Halo Master Chief Collection is doing quite well over there. Sea of Thieves is hitting the best concurrent numbers it's seen uh, week over week, breaking its own records, which is ecstatic and exciting for Microsoft Game Studios and Xbox Game Studios, I should say, because it means more funding, more eyes on, and more gamers playing the games that are branded as Xbox. EA seems to want to do the same thing. Uh, EA, I mean, let me just read like a small list of games that have made their way and are making their way into Steam for EA. Battlefield 5, Dragon Age Inquisition, Jedi Fallen Order, Need for Speed Heat, Titanfall 2, mm, Titanfall 2, love that, and Star Wars Battlefront 2, another game that I absolutely love. When you bring your games of high quality to more gamers, it benefits everyone. And that has been a mantra that Xbox has been piloting for years. And a comfortable, safe argument is that Microsoft did this because they weren't winning the console space. And I agree with you, and I think that's a worthwhile thing to note. That said, it does not make it a bad thing. I think it makes great business decision to have Sea of Thieves first and foremost on the front lines of a Steam list. And it charts well and it motivates you to dive into the Xbox ecosystem. Oh, Sea of Thieves is doing well. That game's free in Game Pass and I can have access to this, 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 and this that's also in Steam or on Windows. Or if I want to get an Xbox in that ecosystem, I've got it. Great. Those are big wins. EA seems to be taking that mantra as well. And I love seeing that for Titanfall 2, a game that's criminally underappreciated as being one of the best shooters of this generation. Uh, Well-deserved. Star Wars Battlefront 2, a game that certainly rose from the ashes of a terrible, atrocious, and offensive launch. That, that launch, I say offensive because those microtransactions were designed to take advantage of the player. And really and truly, the teams buckled down. They were hard at work. There's a tremendous amount of content and clean, fun gameplay in Star Wars Battlefront 2 now that is well worth your time to pick up. If you are not a a subscriber to EA Access or you don't own it on, on console, maybe you're a PC gamer and you've not played Battlefront 2, I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and check it out. It's often on sale. There's a fun campaign in there. It gets a little bit sloppy with some cameos, and it, it kind of bogs it down a little bit. But there's a fun campaign there. And the multiplayer is wonderful and fantastic. And co-op mode is my jam to just play through all the scenes of the of the, the Star Wars universe. So I applaud this move by EA, and, and they announced this in, in EA Play. That's exciting news. It lacks the big punch of something new and special. But it's good news for gamers. And so on that respect, I appreciated it. Uh, they brought Joseph Ferris out, who, of course, made Brothers A Tale of Two Sons and A Way Out, and, of course, he's the guy that famously said F the Oscars, and talked about his new and upcoming game. Uh, I believe it's called It Takes Two. Neat. I, I am not a fan nor a... I don't know what the right word is. I'm not against Joseph Ferris. I, I do not, I'm not thrilled by when I see him. I am a bit eluded, or I, it eludes me why people are so infatuated with him. I believe it's because he's just such a flamboyant, excitable character, uh, and he enjoys you know taking the spotlight, and he does a lot when he has the spotlight. But it was nice to see EA embrace that. Interesting that they showed him cussing, and they bleeped it, but showed him cussing a couple times on their EA play. I thought that would have run counter to what they would typically do but i mean he's making a new game set to be released in uh 2020 and if you liked a way out or brothers a tale of two sons i would imagine you would enjoy this as well uh good on you cool uh not a big deal there are a couple other smaller games that were announced there one game announced at ea play that i was totally into uh and yet at the same time while i was into it i was also kind of like yeah 
was Rocket Arena. Rocket Arena is a 3v3, looks like a third-person hero shooter that, that stands out with some crazy antics that go on where you all dive in on this, this small island and you're playing 3v3, sort of like a good-looking bleeding edge. I'm just going to whisper that into the mic. But I, I was excited by Rocket Arena. I thought it was free to play, and I was like, oh, I'll definitely try that. Find out now it's 30 bucks, even with the A access, so I was a little bit skeptical on that. I'm not sure it's worth the buy-in on that one. I will endeavor to get a code uh, or two and try that out with some friends and see if it's worthwhile when that launches because it's launching on July 14th, which is pretty darn close. July 14th, I think, also is the Stadia Direct date. Stadia is going to have another Direct, uh, Stadia Connect, they call it. Um, so that's neat. Good job, Stadia. But yeah, my eyes are on Rocket Arena. I'm curious about it. I like colorful games like Paladins and whatnot. So yeah, maybe it's good. Maybe it's good. I think one of the reasons I say EA Play lacked the big punch is because we were spoiled about Star Wars Squadrons a bit early. We were spoiled from it by the PlayStation Store uh, months ago when they leaked Star Wars Maverick. And then, of course, the, e the Xbox Store showed Star Wars Squadrons, so EA was forced to make a statement. Uh, imagining a world where Star Wars Squadrons showed up on the stage and we didn't know about it would have been a, a big deal but we saw our first gameplay of star wars squadrons it's a it's got a campaign that you can play in co-op it's a 5v5 versus multiplayer mode as well where you play either uh, as the rebellion or as the empire in your various squadrons and you go toe to toe uh, it looks to be played exclusively in first person so from cockpit view uh, it's a 40 dollar game it looks, it visually, it looks very impressive. So you'll be doing a lot of what we would have done in X-Wing versus TIE Fighter or X-Wing Alliance where you're shifting shields and shifting power to engines and, and lasers and, and whatnot in order to pilot your vehicle. But it's in first person. It's $40 and no microtransactions. That is an interesting setup, not one I would have expected from an EA game. What does a $40 no microtransaction-based game do for, for the player? How extensive is this campaign? Mitch Dyer is among the writers. He helped write Battlefront 2, which, again, the story for Battlefront 2 was pretty good, except for some shoehorned cameos that broke the flow. All right, so so we could see squadrons playing out really well. Maybe not, but a $40 buy-in might allow you to temper your expectations accordingly. I'm curious how they're going to fund additional content coming forward if it does hit off well. I wanted a third-person squadron-based game. It uh, looks like this is first-person only, partially because it's offering VR for VR-compatible systems, which does not include Xbox, but PlayStation VR people will be able to play in VR. I believe it's coming to the other devices on PC as well. Another cool piece of information about Star Wars Squadrons, it's going to have cross-play, meaning my good buddy Joseph Moran and my buddy Kevin Butler, they're probably going to play this in PSVR, uh, playing in VR, uh, piloting their A-Wings, their X-Wings, their TIE Fighters, their Interceptors, etc., whereas I'll be on my Xbox One X. What does that do to our experiences? How does it differ? But the idea that I can still squat up with them, they can play the way they want to play, the way I want to play, that's awesome. That is awesome. I'm really excited by that. Uh, while not included in in the the list of systems available that start for Star Wars Squadrons to be available, Switch was heavily shown in this EA Play. The Nintendo Switch was heavily shown. A lot of EA titles are making their way to Switch. And 
that's exciting for those owners who, who play games on Switch. A lot of them are old games, so I'm not directly excited by this. I do, Apex Legends is the big one because it's free to play. But Burnout Paradise and a few others, eh, whatever. Um, but it was nice to see EA step up to the plate and support more gamers there. And to have crossplay on crossplay on a number of those games. I'm curious to see what it what it means to play against people on Switch in some of the EA titles that might be more kinetic, uh, a little bit more intense, like a Battlefield Five or a Titanfall Two. But um, we'll see, we'll see. I don't know if Titanfall Two is coming to to Switch. I need to check on that one. But my point is, they are supporting multiple platforms: Steam, PlayStation, Xbox, Switch, etc. This is good news for gamers. Uh, but a lot of stuff is is uh, raising eyebrows for EA. Um, another thing that rose, rose eyebrows was that they announced a new skate game. Now, this is on the, the heels of the recently announced Tony Hawk title, the remasters of Tony Hawk 1 and 2 that are coming in towards this holiday. Uh, big deal for skating fans, big deal for skate fans who have long been calling for a remake. It's not officially titled Skate 4 at this moment. And one of the interesting quotes was that uh, from one of the developers they showcased was that people commented this into existence. Now, that is a wonderful PR soundbite, and I wonder how true it really is. It does make me nervous that people can comment things into and out of existence. It's a lot of power to give consumers. Uh, look at Mirror's Edge is a good example of this. Everybody wanted Mirror's Edge. Nobody bought Mirror's Edge. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Everyone's wanting Dead Space. That didn't show up this time. Everyone's wanting Dragon Age. That didn't really show up this time. Everyone wanted a Mass Effect trilogy remake. Did not show up this time. Some people, six or seven of us, were really excited to see what was going to happen with Anthem 2.0. That was also not in attendance for this EA Play. Which brings me to a bigger question now. Lots of good news in this EA Play, for sure. But it lacked the big, heavy punch, which leads me to question, was it worth having an EA Play in 2020 for, uh, for EA? Was it worth putting the money together for a very well-produced show? I want to be very clear about that. The show looked great. It ran well, far better than the May Inside Xbox. Uh, it ran not quite as nicely and cleanly as the PlayStation 5 event, but it was beautiful and well done, good transitions. Uh, it looked like people were using high-quality mics and, and, and high-quality cameras. It was good stuff. But why not include some of these announcements? Put your put your Steam stuff during the PC game showcase. Put your Switch stuff during the, uh, a Nintendo Direct at some point. Put your, your Joseph Ferris game on one of the PlayStation or the Xbox uh, showcases. That would have been a good idea in my mind. This felt like an unnecessary show. Despite its quality, it felt unnecessary. And that's the, the, the struggle, I think, at... Finding your own narrative in 2020 in a time of COVID, in a time of uh, reducing in-person interactions, no E3, ESA dropping the ball there, and the Summer Game Fest seems to be dragging out. I, I now, now, I no longer like Summer Game Fest's approach. I did like it at first. I was on board. I like it. I was like, cool, I don't have to leave my house. I'm going to get better coverage. Cool. But now it's very difficult to keep track of what is what and when. And some of these are three-day events, four-day events, live streams. Uh, some of them are developer interviews, trailers. Trying to figure out and track what's important has become difficult, and I do not enjoy the metagame of that. And so I've come now to rely on outlets that I trust, whether it be an IGN, uh, a Kotaku, a Kind of Funny Games Daily, whatever it is that, that speaks to you or me at any point. That seems to be where we rely on our heavy hitters for, oh, sifting through the, the massive amounts of information and finding what is for you. So take that for what you will. EA Play, I thought, was unnecessary, but nice to see. Nice to see. 
Hi, this is Jeremy Gritton, art director and story lead for Ori and the Will of the Wisps, and you're listening to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Raising the eyes of gamers again in this past week was an announcement by CD Projekt Red that Cyberpunk 2077, its scheduled launch date of September 17th, would be delayed now, roughly two months and some change, to November 19th. CD Projekt Red came out saying that they were going to delay the game because it, at the moment, while it is done, while all the missions are done, the campaign is done, the side quests are done, the animations, the cinematics, all of that is done, there are so many intricacies between all of these game systems, they want to take the extra time to squash bugs and make sure they are as streamlined and up to par as possible. They posted this on their social media threads in an apologetic and yet honest approach to distributing this information and I know a lot of people were disappointed by the news that Cyberpunk would again be delayed. However, I would note a couple things for you. This gives time for you to play Kingdoms of Amalur Re-Reckoning, which I'm excited for. The Avengers game was scheduled to be in September, so if that doesn't get delayed, you'll have time to to check that out. But also, if Cyberpunk 2077 is living up to the expectations that so many people have for it, It'll all be worth it once the game comes out. A September release window at the very end of this generation could have been very profitable or lead people to be buying in and expecting it to be a better experience on their, on their new systems. The date that raises eyebrows for me that I find interesting is November 19th. That's just a week prior to Black Friday, and you have to expect that the new systems will be at will be out at or around this time. I'm very curious to see if this is in any way related, and we'll only find this out later, if this is in any way related to the Xbox launch date because they have a marketing deal with that. Does the Series X launch on November 19th or right around that time, like in like a two, three-day period there? And is Cyberpunk 2077 going to be marketed as best on Series X? They've already told us that their updated next-gen patch wouldn't be ready till 2021. That they said that actively, that this is not their next-gen version of the game. Both PS5 and Series X are going to get upgraded versions. That is clear. They're going to be updated for free. A lot of people speculating what back-compat, forward-compat means for PlayStation 5, whereas Xbox fans are comfortable in the smart delivery messaging at this point. I don't know if this is a, a potential release date. It certainly seems to be. I would also be equally pleased and happy to see that it's the earlier in November. The sooner... I want the sooner the better for these systems because I want them to go ahead and start hitting market share. At the same time, we don't know what that Xbox Series X price point is. We don't know what Lockhart is, the Series S is. We don't know that stuff yet, and that could play a factor in this. So all eyes are on Cyberpunk to continue spotlighting us. They have their their uh, out Night City. The Night City has an, an announcement that's kind of like their their own showcase about Cyberpunk. I believe Paris Lilly is going to be helping to spotlight that coverage for IGN. A wonderful voice from uh, Gamertag Radio. He'll be working in that. I am happy to see C- CD Projekt Red continuing to work to do their fans right. These are the same guys that in The Witcher Three put in leaflets saying thank you for playing our game. And they provided 17 DLCs for free. I can't imagine CD Projekt Red does anything wrong by fans if they can avoid it. Uh, I'm, all, I'm all for this. Delay any game that you need to. I want to play all your games right now to everybody. And I'm excited about a game. I want to play it right away. But delay it if you need to. I want the best experience possible uh, because it's important. It is important.
Let's move now into listener mail. We had a number of you write in on Twitter tweeting me at InsipidGhost with your thoughts and questions from this past week. Uh, and I snagged several of them, and we'll see how many we get through just now. Uh, the first com- question comes from Todd Oxtra, who tweeted me and said, What's your take on the Xbox Series S? He means Lockhart. Uh, do they reveal and launch in 2020 and stop selling the Xbox One? Or do they hold off on the Xbox One until the Xbox One support ends and get new hardware news and allow it to be the value play? Uh, mm, Todd, good question. I'm going to abstain from answering you until I know what Lockhart or the Series S is. Uh, if it's a streaming stick that's extremely cheap, that changes the conversation. If it's a, you know, Series X is 500, Series S is 300, what does that do? Once we know price points for the PlayStation 5 and the Xbox family of devices, that will play a big role in just how much they wind down Xbox One production and just what and where they should market uh, the Series S or the Series X. And, and just we need more information before I'm to pass judgment now. If it were me right now at this moment, though, I would suggest that they start winding down Xbox One production anyway. Uh, they've sold out. I think the, the amount of systems that they're going to sell is not going to go up dramatically. I think it's time to clear shelf space, drop those things down to super cheap prices, get people in on Game Pass, and uh, start moving into your new hardware. That's my thought process, but there are more educated people there. Let's go to this next question from Chad Jessam. Chad writing in for the first time, I believe. I hope you're doing well, Chad. He asks, uh, what's your favorite scary or spooky moment in a non-horror game? Oh, man, that's a great question. I think Gone Home stands out in my mind because initially when you play Gone Home, you think it's a horror title. It feels very much to be a horror title. It turns out not to be for anyone that's interested in Gone Home. It will not jump scare you, but there's an air of tension that initially made me think that. Uh, I also go back to the very first Gears of War. The first Gears of War has vibes of a horror title. It's not one. It's still an action title, but I thought that it was a horror game at first, and I was really getting vibes of that, and I was spooked out a number of times there because it gets dark. It gets brooding. Moments of quiet, moments of elation and loudness and explosions. So Gears of War is probably among my favorite spooky moments or spooky game that's not a horror-based bit. I mean, going down under and checking out for the Resonator in that first Gears, that was something special, man. So I hope I, I answered that one. Next question comes from Betterman77. He says, uh, what are your thoughts on the release release dates for Lockhart, same as the X or later? So really asking when these systems should launch. I saw my friend uh, Mr. Boomstick XL. He was noting in the Double Fine trailer for Psychonauts 2 that they highlight July 2020 as when we're going to find out information. But the way the 2020 fades in, it makes it look like July 2nd for the information dump on these systems, uh, which might give us a, a more concrete release date then. Uh, realistically, I would like to see these consoles launch in late October, early November, if production lines are, are holding solid. If they're not holding solid, move them back to September. Go. Ahead. I mean, sorry, if they are even more solid than I think, move them into September, right around Avengers launch time. Uh, I think realistically, though, the, the cyberpunk news suggests that we're going to have them in mid-November uh, for sure. And if you're going to launch Series S or Lockhart alongside X, that's not a bad thing. But those price points, I think, should be 200 and 400. 200 is a great undercut market to a potential PS5 of 400. 
And uh, if it works, if whatever it is is doing is that special, if that comes out, I think it'll be a good good stuff there. Uh, launch them simultaneously, or if it's a stick and it's not ready, delay the Series S until you know mid 2021 and have that be a summer launch around e3 2021 and say and for those of you that don't want to buy in on a series x or whatnot here's the series s stick to stream your games via xcloud if the xcloud technology is ready so there's a lot of questions it, it all comes down to what lockhart is and that's why i couldn't comfortably answer todd's question that's why i'm struggling to answer you now if the streaming stick and xcloud tech is ready do it now if it's not ready don't don't release it just wait just wait and then launch it in E3 next year. And that way any of the, the Sony PlayStation fans who, who are really dedicated to their console or Switch fans that are dedicated to that console, both with great IPs on that system, uh, maybe they consider, hey, I can get $200 for a stick or, or whatnot and stream Xbox games. Cool. That's fine. Why not do that and have that approach? It all depends on how ready xCloud is and how integrated Game Pass is into xCloud. I think they could learn a lot of lessons from Stadia and their botch launch, and thankfully they're able to do that so far with an early access approach to what xCloud is. Let's see here. Next on the list, uh, oh, here's one from Hypecaster, uh, someone who's constantly supportive of the show and does a lot of the overlays for the show. He and Adam Leonard do great work for, for uh, helping me with the production side of things. Hypecaster says, oh man, I am convinced Xbox is going to show at least two moody or mature narrative-focused adventure games with detailed character facial models. Okay. Uh, to contend with PlayStation, what are your thoughts? Do you think Xbox needs to win people over? Okay, that's a that's a, a good good question there, Hypecaster. Uh, I agree with you that Sony has done a great job with moody, uh, narratively heavy games, impactful games. Uh, you've seen it be successful in games like God of War, The Last of Us, and Horizon Zero Dawn. Unsuccessful with it, with games like The Last Guardian. I think Days Gone really kind of missed the intended mark uh, there. But I understand what you mean. A lot of times when people are discussing the comparisons between the Sony first party and the Xbox first party, they see you know moody third-person narrative-based games uh, being very mature over on the, the PlayStation side and that being something that sells systems. Uh, I recognize that argument. I do think Microsoft takes that into account. All, all the things that we are hearing about the July showcase, the July event, to showcase the Xbox Series X uh, game titles coming so that Microsoft is well aware at what fans have been missing and wanting within their brand, and they're set to deliver on it. I do think you'll see Fable. I do think you'll see Halo Infinite deliver a God of War-style changes or some sort of uh, approach to, to Halo that brings new people in, as they need to do. No doubt about it. They need to do that. I say that as somebody is a diehard Halo fan. They must have a God of War-esque moment with one of their brands, and Halo seems the right one to do it with. Uh, so I do think they show off some moody games, whether it's Fable, whether it's Halo, maybe Perfect Dark. Of course, that's making the rounds in the appearance, but also new IP. They need that. Hello, Hellblade Senua's Saga is one of those games. That was once a PlayStation exclusive in Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice, made its way to multi-plat. Now it belongs to Ninja Theory, who belongs to Xbox. Great, good on them. I, I think you're going to get the answer to that question. They do need those kinds of games to compete with PlayStation. They do not only need those types of games to, to compete with PlayStation. 
Forza Horizon series is wonderful. Sea of Thieves is wonderful. Uh, those games are both making money hand over fist. State of Decay can see an evolution of sorts uh, to maintain its relevancy. Ori could be doubled down on and made a, a true first party. There's a lot of ways to take what exists right now within their known IP and build upon them. But they do need to bring more stuff in, and we know they're doing that. You don't get 15 studios and not expand and not try things. Anecdotally, tangentially related to this, Grounded is getting early access reviews. Like People are checking out early access builds of Grounded uh, in a flight that, that's showing off as a, as a demo, basically, for a game that Grounded is launching in 2021. People are liking it. That really surprised me there. I did not expect people to get in on grounded and like it i was expecting another bleeding edge situation with bleeding edge i tried it out i was like oh i had fun for 20 minutes and this game's not fun now and i don't enjoy it i got the 1k simply for for posterity's sake because i felt like the game would be dead pretty soon and, and seemingly it is uh grounded doesn't seem to be the case for that so cool good on them they're doing some neat things over there surprise me i like that Next question here, we've got, let's see. All right, let's go with Famous Seamus himself, always a wonderful supporter. He says, what is your favorite achievement from a game? It can be a challenging one or it can be a joke achievement or just an achievement within within a funny or with a funny name. Uh, my favorite achievement is one I believe I have marked on my Xbox profile, Insipid Ghost. Of course, you guys can always check, up, check my profile and achievements and hold me accountable if you like. Check my fandom. I don't care for that. Um... I think it's the Lone Wolf achievement for Halo 5. I really enjoyed going through that solo on its hardest difficulty. I do not like to play games on hard really as much as I used to. I, I've faded away from that. But doing Halo 5 Lone Wolf was fun. I did the same thing for Halo 4. Uh, though I believe I did that one in the 360 version, not in the, the Master Chief collection. But I like lone wolfing games that I love. That's a fun thing for me to do. I enjoy that. I like seeking out 1Ks. I enjoy the 1K. I wish that we used the, the phrase 1K more often because platinum sounds so good on the PlayStation side. I platinum Spider-Man. I, I 1K'd Spider-Man. It wouldn't sound as good. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's, that's one there. Jedi Fallen Order was a fun one. I was really proud of that one. Uh, not overly difficult, but uh, but a fun one. Yeah, the Lone Wolf Halo achievements are the ones that I'm really proud of. I think those are good achievements. I also have the Redeemer achievement on Red Dead Redemption 1. Really enjoyed that game. Getting 100% at all things in that game was was a blast. All right, let's go with one more question. We'll have one more question here from Bill Coniglio, uh, a good friend of mine, a good friend of the show. Uh, he says, would you prefer Halo Infinite to stay the course and be a single-player game with multiplayer option? Or would you be okay if they made it a live service like Destiny? It's, it's funny you call it a multiplayer option. I think a lot of people think of Halo as a multiplayer game that has an option for single player. What I want, Bill, as I understand it now, I want a single player, 10, hour, uh, 10 to 15 hour single player narrative focusing on Master Chief. I want that. I then want a live service Destiny-like approach where I can go out on missions with my fire team, with friends, uh, of mine and maybe play alongside some of the characters from the Halo universe. Maybe I'm going off with parts of Blue Team or Ferret Team or I'm going off on a mission with Locke uh, or whatnot, but I play as my Spartan in strikes, in missions similar to a Destiny experience. I would like that, but I want a single-player dedicated narrative for those fans to have and then a multiplayer suite that exists similar to Halo 5 where you're able to to just go in and have a ball in different game modes. But having those three options, strikes... Uh, that are multiplayer co-op based having uh, PvP 
exist where it exists and having a single player narrative dope i like that i want that and then you have to imagine if the game does well they're gonna do an expansion an odst as it were they're gonna do a dlc uh, version for infinite and then you could just have more strikes you could have more missions you could have maybe a campaign dedicated to lock or a character that we like more uh in and of itself because lock a lot of people hate lock I don't hate Locke. I just think he was terribly used in Halo 5. But the character himself, like a, a Black Ops agent that makes his way to be a Spartan, that's kind of cool. There's a lot you could do with that. So that is my answer, and that, that has been my answer for a while. I want the mixed approach there. But uh, I tell you what, man, everything I'm hearing on the back end about Halo Infinite is positive. They rebooted that bad boy around the, around the arrival of God of War and saw what it was Sony was doing, and I think that, that gave them inspiration and maybe defeated some of the things they were doing that were too old school. And they're trying something new. So so here's hoping. Well, guys, that is going to do it for my portion of this show today. It is a long episode, and I so appreciate you joining me this week. I'm going to throw you to a an, an interview with Justin Woodward in just a moment, the director and founder of the Media Indie Exchange. Uh, he worked with the Gorilla Collective and working with Kind of Funny to bring that together and spotlight a lot of different uh, indie games. More importantly, though, we ended up in, by the end of our conversation, a lot of a discussion about Black Lives Matter and how that's impacted the gaming industry specifically, how the the raising of funds has been hurtful in some ways and great in other ways, how some people, uh, some people, some companies are using it as a publicity stunt, whereas others are making it more worthwhile. And I encourage you to listen to it start to finish. Hear Justin's words. It is a long interview. We talked for about an hour, more so than I typically do. But it was it was good. It was worthwhile. It was powerful. Um, and then, really and truly, some of you have started doing this, and I can't thank you enough. But once you've heard the episode, if the interview spoke to you, tweet the person and me at the same time and let them know that you heard it here. Uh, it is... It, it means a lot because it shows me that I'm working in a way that you like. I'm working at something you want to do. This show is not an interview show every time. But when the interviews make an impact on you or make you excited for a game, sell you a game, uh, avoid help avoid something, or, or when those things happen, that it makes me feel like I'm doing something good for fellow gamers. So, so take that for what you will. All right, guys, I'm going to send you over to Justin Woodward. Enjoy the interview. I love you all very much. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Take care. All righty, we are very fortunate now to be joined by Justin Woodward, entrepreneur and founder of the Media Indie Exchange. Justin, coming fresh off the Gorilla Collective, thank you for being here. Hey, what's up, Luke? How's it going? Things go well. I mean, you've certainly had a busy week, and the gaming industry adjusts to all the changes that have happened in 2020. Uh, tell us a bit, uh, before we dive into Gorilla Collective, tell me a bit about yourself and how you, you entered into the world of gaming, as it were. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, how, how did you enter into the world in general? That <laughs> That's a totally different question. That's a different show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I'm a... First and foremost, I love video games like you and like probably everyone. Actually, I'm I'm absolutely sure everyone you know listening loves video games and um yeah since I was little right since I was like you know five or six mm-hmm. um and so when I was when I was growing up and maybe I'm taking it way too far back but here it goes uh, I I always loved video games I loved comic books 
I used to draw all the time. And, uh, and then I started to draw, I went to art high school and then I went to college for art and design. And then I went to college for uh, game art design. And so I got my degree in game art design. And then, and, and then right after that, uh, I went and worked in the industry as a environment art, um, and designer. Um, so I worked with T for THQ. I did like a, a bunch of like freelance contract gigs doing, you know, art and design. Then I started a, um, I started a graphic design company with friends from that school. Mm-hmm. And then soon after that, um, we, we were trying to figure out how we got back into, into making games because we were doing graphic design, but we didn't want to work for quote the man, you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Like we, we, I personally don't like being a cog in a wheel and not have any kind of exploratory um, control over artistic vision and that kind of thing. So well, okay, that okay, being so said, which version of THQ were you working at that kind of put you on that path? Is this the old THQ or kind of it's reinvented? Was, and it wasn't even that long. So I'm not going to front like I was there for years. It was very short. It was like three to six months. And I found out quickly that I don't like, I didn't like it. Right. Gotcha. But it was, it, it was uh like so I I grew up in San Diego and San Diego has a wealth of studios like AAA studios so they had at the time it was Rockstar uh Sony PlayStation um and they had two THQ studios one called Concrete and one called Incinerator mm-hmm. Uh, and then they also had um, another one I can't remember that got bought by Sega, and that was High Moon Studios, mm, which now Deadpool. is owned by Act- mm-hmm. yeah. So then now they got bought by Activision, and they're doing stuff for um, you know Call of Duty and that kind of thing, right? And so those were like that was the the circle. Like once you get out of school, you're gonna apply to all these different places, um, and so. What I wanted to do, I wanted to go to High Moon. I had an internship, but I wanted to make money, and so I went. I ended up getting a better position and paid more at uh, THQ. But it was, to me, it was the most boring crap ever. <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, my friends worked across the street, like literally across from me. I had friends at High Moon. I had friends at um, at uh, Concrete, and they were working on something that, at, at the end of the day, like just got canceled, which is crazy. But yeah, the the idea behind um, the, like working for a AAA studio uh, was yeah. I one thing was I thought it was gr- it was awesome. Like you know, just the status of working for you know a big company. But what I was doing was really boring to me, and because I like to be creative and I like to you know uh, do different things. You know, with the knowledge that I have of you know graphic design, arts, and, and production, and that kind of thing. So. I got bored quickly, and then I was also looking at the people who worked there, the management, um, and I just noticed that they were there. They were, like, you know, in their late 40s, and it looked like the sparkle kind of, like, <laughs> left their eye for development. So, anyway, like, I moved on, and, and we did the we did the, um, the graphic design company, which actually w- was starting to become successful, and then we picked up a project to do video games. And then shortly after that, you know, we were figuring out how we're going to make this company um, and what our team was going to be like. There was failures and like how we're going to fund it and that kind of thing. And so we did this, did this project called Shinobi Ninja Attacks for the first iPhone slash iPod. 
which was a beat em up and like a classic brawler. And from that, we we had some like I was I started my um my uh, master's degree in game game production and management. Um, and I took that time as a you know a learning experience while I was getting my master's degree. And uh, after that, like we were like we finished that game. I learned so many lessons. The whole team learned lessons. People fell off. I made mistakes in man, you know in managing people and being a leader. And then we started a new project which was called Super Combo Man. And then we got into uh, we got into this thing called the IGN Indie Open House. And the re- the way that I got into that was just I was like extremely determined in finding mentorship. So I found mentorship through a woman who I did I did production work for for her her uh, videos. And then I found internship for uh, actually the technical director of High Moon Studios for years. His name is Clinton Keith, and he he introduced production development, um, agile production development to the game industry. And he, he took me under his wing and I went to teach people at EA how to use these EA and Ubisoft and all these other folks, how to use this production, um, uh, uh, methodology. And, and then from that, like there was this thing called the indie, the IGN indie open house. And they were like looking for applicants. We were already working on the pre-production for super combo man. And they accepted us, uh, and the cool thing about that was um, it was at a leadership forum, which I was teaching folks at AAA Studios that the agile methodology for production under under Clint. And they I was in the same city because IGN, uh, the headquarters of IGN is in San Francisco. And um, I said, hey, I'm in town. Can I go check out this, you know, check out the office and then like talk more about what you, you know, what you got planned for this this accelerator basically. Mm -hmm. And since I got there, you know, they were like, well, he's in person. This guy's cool. Or, you know, he's personable and we like his game. The next day they contacted me and said, Hey, uh, we would like to have you and your team come up, you know, and, and take part in this accelerator. And I don't know if you know, you know what accelerator is basically it's, you know, they're made to help, budding studios or, or budding companies figure out their footing and, you know, gain some kind of traction with, with, with partners and that kind of thing. And, and so we took that opportunity. Like right? on a, a funding level or like you're shaking Not hands and meeting people to invest. What, what, what type of like acceleration is this? So it was, it was very vague to them as well. Mm-hmm. And it, the interesting part is in, and I don't think, you know, I, you could tell me if I'm going too deep into things. Uh, Cause I tend to do that to go on a tangent. It's your um, time, man. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, these, there's a lot media companies are very interesting, right? Like, you know, CBS owns GameSpot and, and a number of other properties. And at the time Fox owned, uh, uh, I can't even remember the platform. What is the what is the uh, the Facebook the the old school Facebook? They owned. Um, I don't even know what you're talking. Facebook gaming is the only thing that's coming to my mind, and that's that's not right. No, no. What was the social network before Facebook? Uh, MySpace. MySpace. See, I can't even freaking remember. It's so long ago. But <laughs> uh, in the built in that same building in IGN, just physically, they owned GameSpy, which was freaking amazing for pc gaming at the time and they were doing a lot of work on multiplayer gaming cross-platform they owned myspace they owned um ask 
uh, asked me, I can't even remember, but they own a bunch of properties, right? Photo bucket and all this other stuff. But they were trying to figure out how to, you know, um, basically pivot Game Spy, right? Because what was happening was Unity and Unreal and these other tools that were available for developers were easier to come by. And the bigger companies that they were, they're basically like Nintendo, they did the multiplayer for Mario Kart on the Wii. And they did the multiplayer for Grand Theft Auto 4, right? So these companies were like, we don't need your infrastructure. We're going to create our own infrastructure. And so when that happened, they had to figure out a way to pivot. One of the things that they were trying to do was, hey, how do we communicate with game developers, see what they want, what kind of tools that they can create, and we're going to create a business model for that. So they they utilized that since – IGN open uh, IGN owned GameSpy mm-hmm. to have this for, you know have developers come up take up their office um, and then they would figure out how to communicate with developers they would offer um, the IGN was looking for you know they're always looking for content so we were able to col- collaborate and communicate with the editors we were able to uh, get media training because I did like if I was on a call with you 10 years ago or nine years ago, I would be like out of my wits, mm-hmm. you know, not to mention being on camera for four hours in front of hundreds of thousands of people on the gorilla collective. Like <laughs> right. if I didn't have media training, I would not be able to do that. And, but Okay. So pause, pause there. Cause that, that is a point of, of interest for me in that oftentimes on this show, we'll, we'll interview developers and then I'll see interviews with various people at, at GDCs and then at E3 previous E3 coverages and whatnot, and some of them look very PR prepped, ready to go, understanding the questions they'll be asked and what the the situations they might be in. Others look like deer in headlights, scared out of their minds because their goal was to make games, and now they're they're on stage and on camera and have microphones in their face. Is that something that you – you clearly know how to navigate it now. You helped others navigate through. Somebody helped you. Like, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, so I mean, I'm all, I've always been good at pretty good at speaking mm-hmm. with friends and and you know neg- negotiating like uh, or navigating you know social you know uh, having social awareness to to navigate you know in social settings and stuff like that. But like I was always from a young age, like when I got in front of a camera, that kind of stuff, I would be kind of like a deer in the headlights, like you were saying, and so. What they provided, like you're, you were asking, was it, it was they were trying to figure out what, what they could provide us and like how we can like interact with them and that kind of thing. But one of the things they did do, which was really awesome, was they gave us PR training. So we we had our game Super Combo Man. There was like four other no, there was like six other developers there in the office, um, and then we they took us to GDC. Like they paid for the space, right? Um, so we went to GDC. And it was just we were bombarded with questions, and we went to um, uh, I think it's let me let me I think it's forty one communications. It's it's a uh, amazing um, uh, it's amazing firm that works with Capcom and all these huge forty seven. So sorry, yeah. yeah, lovely people there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so shout out to Kramer. Kramer's, you know. I think he's one of the founders um, in that my bad for say, 41, 47 communications. And they basically train. They, they were like, this is what you. So, for instance, we all of all of the developers that were in the IGN Indie Open House, we were there. They would come by. They would check out our game. 
they would say, hey, tell us about your game. Pitch your game to us, mm-hmm. right, as PR or, you know, as an outlet. And then we would have to tell them. And then they would give us feedback based on what we said, right? And then we would – we were working on our pitches and our pitch decks and, like, that kind of thing. And then we had um, we had a press day. Mul- we had multiple press days. So we were in front of the IGN staff, editorial and, you know, marketing and, like, that kind of thing. We had to share, you know, the big, huge round table. And then we had a, a press junket day at 47 Communications in their office. And we had, like, every single, you know, m- member from these different press sites come up and, and they just bombarded us with, like, a junket, you know. And mm-hmm. I froze. <laughs> like... Like crazy, I felt so bad for my team, and I was just like so nerve wracking, and you know, and then from that, I just kept going, you know, I just kept speaking about, you know, my game and and talking about it, and going on different shows and and going on different podcasts and that kind of thing, and and then I got I got used to it, but it was invaluable to get that exposure, you know, um, at at different shows, like I said, GDC, and then going to E3, and and I always have to push, and I think ind- independent game developers always have to push to for self advocacy for their stuff. No, you have to ask. You know, you're you're going to get a lot of doors swung in your face. You're going to get a lot of no's, but you building up the confidence to ask and not be scared, and and building up thick skin for rejection. You know, and and not letting it stop you. That's what makes it all of this stuff easier. Talking to press, all this stuff, because you don't know, like you, you you start to realize, especially sitting in the office of IGN for I think around two years at that point. You know, from uh, at the end of the day, you start to realize these are just you know these are just regular people. They're they're dealing with different things, and they have their bosses that they have to talk to, and there's certain things they need to cover, and they have to hustle like this type of thing. So you you start to understand that. Right, and mm-hmm. there's nothing to really worry about. Um, this sounds like the it, genesis for Media Indie Exchange. Like, like in your mind, I would imagine you're toiling with how to, how to do it better. Is that is this is this that genesis? So that was it. Yeah. So this long, this ridiculously long intro <laughs> is the that's the impetus to yeah for the Media Indie Exchange. So basically, what happened was we were there for a year. My my team basically broke up. It was really, really tough because it was a money situation, all that stuff, as an indie developer. And there was other indies there. And then we were like – I became really cool with the guys at GameSpy and the, and the people at IGN. And I was like, can we stay another session? I will help run – I will help run this, you know, the and organize this. Um, and we're going to continue to work on our game, continue to hustle. We know you have space. Um, and then they were like, sure, all my team broke up. We got back together later or most of us. And then all the other teams left except but like one of my really close friends, Alex Austin. What, what year um, is this? This is – oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no I'm curious because like I'm thinking this is like early 2010s. Am I am – I, Yeah, that... right. Totally right. So we, we packed up our – I, I packed up my car and just with my stuff and moved to the bay – uh, in 2011, mm-hmm. so that was 2011, and then the end of 2012 is when we started the second session, and then that is the first uh, media uh, mix event that we had. So the mix event came about when my good friend um, Alex, who I was just talking about, he was in the program. He he and I were the only ones left, 
And then David Rosen from Humble Bundle, the co-founder of Humble Humble Bundle, was also in the space. Uh, and then my friend um, uh, Tim Keenan, who now runs, uh, he's a creative director at uh, Bad Robot for video games. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was there too. So we were all hustling, working on our games, and we were like, how do we get exposure we can't get exposure, and it was even difficult to get exposure from IGN, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and even so, bumping elbows with them, it was tough, huh? It was tough, yeah. You you got to like the the thing is like they, you know, there there has to be a level of, um, I'm trying to think of how to how to say it, but like they don't want to be coerced or feel coerced or feel that it's not authentic what bias. they cover. They want to avoid bias. Yeah, they want to be exactly, exactly. So us being there, they wanted to avoid as much any kind of bias that that could be presented because, you know, to them, people knew we were in the office, which people probably didn't at all. Um, But what regardless of that, we were like, hey, we're we're having trouble. We're working on our games. We have our head down working on our games. We need to find exposure. How do we find exposure? You know, and that was a, you know, that was a core problem. So we were like, GDC's coming around. We're always here at GDC. GDC is a big meeting thing, you know, for developers. We go to crazy parties. We network. Networking happens more in the party atmosphere than it does in, you know, the the stale kind of conference setting, right? Mm -hmm. You get to to have a beer. You get to, you know, have a drink, whatever, and chill. You talk to people. You create a real bond. So – we were like, how about we do – we get a, a few kegs, um, and then we invite people to the IGN office. IGN is like a, an amazing place, right? And and so we asked them, hey, you know, like can we take over your office for one night, you know, during GDC? And we'll we'll do it in the kitchen area. We're going to set up monitors and, and set up our systems, and we're just going to have our friends come through, right? And it was totally underground, and, and what ended up happening was we called all of our, like, super amazing like i can't even tell you all the games that were there but at the time they were like it was like retro city rampage and uh, tower fall and nice. like, all of these like games that were uh, these indie games that we were friends with these developers and they were just about to explode but we were all there under at ign and then we had like you know namco came through playstation came through and all these like folks came through that were really amazing um and then it was fun. Like we had we had pizza and the setup looked really cool. It was at night and, and it was underground, so it was like it had this whole vibe to it. Um and it really popped off. And and, and so and, this uh, was your first mix. That was the first yeah, it was the first mix. And it was yeah, it was uh um Alex Austin, it was um uh John Polson who now runs publishing at Humble Bundle, and it was uh yeah, Tim and myself and we we basically you know, we basically formulated that. And then, um, so it was the first mix and it, it was in 2012 and it was, it was a success, but it was like a hundred people came through, but the, all the, the hundred people that were there were just amazing people. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so after that, uh, the next year I was like, yo, I want to do it again. Well, and let me, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Cause my brain is piecing things together. I'm like the meme with Julia Roberts, like doing the math. So, uh, 
2012 is this first mix, really, underground vibe. PlayStation rolls through several others. Is that when they're gathering portfolios for the PlayStation 4 and the Xbox One and the We Love Indies initiative? I, I feel kind of showed its face for, for console gamers. Is that is that lining up or, or am I just kind of grasping at straws? So there's yeah there's a lot there's definitely a lot, like some of that stuff is definitely lining up there's a there is a big swell of indie you know indie game content following like the the, the Xbox 360 right mm-hmm. you know they had the any and and some of my friends were on uh you know the I can't remember what it, off the top but you know the the store uh, live arcade the, the what Xbox Live Arcade is that what you're referring? Yes, Xbox Live Arcade. I have a number of friends that were, you know, that worked on products for that and all that stuff. But yeah, this was the beginning of that. It was like the end of the PS3 360 era, era. and then I think following that, 13, 14 is when you know a, a bunch of the, you know, the platform holders are looking for content, like because the the big AAA content is not going to be ready for launch. So what do they do? Which this is going to happen for PS5 and, and Scarlet, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's, it, it you're going to have this, or not Scarlet anymore, but, you know, the the, the next Xbox. But, um, is there, you know, they're looking for content, and all this, like, really hot indie stuff is going to be the thing that's going to be on the forefront, you know? Um, and so, yeah, they were looking for that stuff, and, and they were looking at it early on, but I think more so 2013, 2014 um, is when they really were starting, you know what I mean? Like, hunting hunting for this type of stuff mm-hmm. man that's crazy and and so i would imagine year over year it evolves uh you know until i guess 2020 and, and bring it into now i mean things are different now you you form gorilla Co- collective we have listener questions about about that process did but before 2020 when when the digital shift kind of was required to take place how did the mix change from those early you know 2013ish years to maybe 2019 well yeah so after that like we we were doing them at IGN I was building the brand mm-hmm. you know it was it was the mix now you know after the first year I was like we need to brand this we need to create a website we need to you know we need people on board separate from my game development studio. So things kind of went two different directions. I still had the game studio. I still am working on the mix. Um, and, and so the evolution was like, we were continuously growing. And so like the third year we took over more of the IGN office and there was a line out the door, you know? Uh, and that's when we started seeing sponsorship because before it was nothing. Like we were, I was paying out of my pocket and like asking. And IGN was super cool. They still are. We work with IGN is a partner to this day. We mm-hmm. still work with them. We actually do their promotions and stuff. Um, some of their promotions, but they were putting money down on it. You know, like uh, shout out to Todd um, Northcut. Um, but he like they were like we're they were investing in it right um, to allow this thing because it was good for them as well. Right. Um, and so after that, we were like, I got a partner, um, Joel, who who was doing his own thing in the Bay as well. And then we were like, let's do something in L.A. And then we were like, OK, cool. We did something in L.A. We did Seagraph in Vancouver. And um, and then we started to expand to E3. And then E3 really took off. And then, like we 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 did that for a number of years with like smaller. We were we were basically 
experimenting like what what does the audience look like what can what are other things we could do how many developers can we have and this is the mix probably why you haven't heard of it and a lot of people haven't heard of it it's it up until uh, two years ago it was all exclusive right mm. so everything's curated the developers are curated um the guests were curated everything because it we want it to be like it, you know a place where press want to come and see the hottest newest thing. And then we want developers to have the communication with the the newest, you know, not the newest, but like, you know, big public, big indie publishers, you know, first party and press. Right. right. And so that's how we got it in there is that everything was like really tight. So when you come to, when you come to our event, it was like PlayStation, Xbox, you know, um, Nintendo, you know what I mean? Like all all those folks were definitely there, their reps. And then we would have like, you know, Kotaku, Polygon, IGN, GameSpot, like all, you know, PC Gamer. Uh, all those folks were there. You know, it was a hotbed for like things to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we then we started to expand and in when we did PAX. So then it was like our main events were GDC, E3, PAX West. Uh, and then we were doing other things outside of that, right? Like just experimental things. Until last year, we did games. Uh, we did Gamescom, so we went to Germany and we did an event there. We, we did Bit Summit in in Kyoto, mm-hmm. uh, and you know we've expanded that way. Um, and then we added different components to each one, like I was saying. So four years ago, we did our first live show, Twitch live stream. So we. We work with AV Society and Tracy Peterson, um, who set up a production studio. Basically, we would rent out, like when we rent out the whole space, uh, we would rent out a room specifically for a stream. And then we work with Twitch, Twitch is, you know, a partner uh, to get the front page. And we would showcase games that have never been seen before. So there were premiering content and we would run it for three hours. So we kind of we we were able we were kind of going that way anyway, kind of leading up to, this, to the mix live, which we had during GDC in March, or the lack of GDC, and then you know the Guerrilla Collective production, which happened this week, uh, ended this week. Um, so yeah, it was a natural progression. We do we were doing more shows, it was getting bigger and bigger, and more. Uh, it was more successful in the sense that you know um, you know sponsors were were interested and that's how you know we fund because you know renting a venue and all of that stuff is is really expensive and the equipment and that kind of thing and it, it's a whole production like a live production um and that just kept growing and growing like it, um to the extent where we have a dj you know we're renting out rooftops and it's it's a you know this bigger experience um but the the thing that makes it you know, the thing that we care about is the are the number one are the games and the developer, um, and and I'm a developer and I've seen the struggles to go to go back to even the PR situation and the struggles that I've had with money and um and that we've had with publishing you know finding publishers and funding our games and that kind of thing. Um, I spent time you know at uh, Fig uh, uh, at Fig, which is a, a crowdfunding platform. Um, in publishing too. So being, you know, having my ear to the streets and, and, and us having our ear to the streets, being in development, understanding what it takes to publish a game on multiple platforms is probably like the biggest way that, you know, I connect, we, we connect with developers and then understand the ecosystem, you know, and I don't like to throw out those 
boring buzzwords, but I mean, that's what it is. And you know what I mean? Like when, when, when I'm on stream and we're on stream talking about this stuff, like I care, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. You like, what did you do to make, to make this happen? Like, how are you, you know? And then afterwards, it's not even just that it's not just, we're just throwing these events. It's like, we're in constant communication, matchmaking developers or, you know, communicating with publishers, like if there's someone they want to talk to that we know, you know, it's a constant networking stream, you know, and these are relationships. And I think that that's what behind the scenes when you're talking about these like events and you're talking about like these media companies, it's all relationships. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) when you see us, you know, when you see someone on a stream, you know, sometimes it's serendipitous, you know, but sometimes it's like, oh, there's a relationship there with so, so, and so, and so, so. And that, I mean, and, that's quite seriously how you and I were able to connect was a relationship through Greg, just, just, just a passive, like, hey, this is who you need. And I would imagine those connections, they help get the job done because with all the indie developers we've had on the show and just in conversation and to your point, it is a struggle sometimes to make ends meet and still be indie and make that make your product work. And so when you have people that understand that, I would imagine it's almost like a informal family in some ways. Oh, it's definitely a family. Like these are, you know what I mean? It's, Mm -hmm. it's definitely a family. And I think, I mean, not to make it too, to get too serious, but like when you see, and this is something that I've been talking to just folks in the game industry, like these are my, these are my brothers. Like, sisters and stuff is crazy because we are all all going through this like it it is not easy making a game it's like one of the most difficult things in the world especially if you're doing it independently so when you know every this you know when things are happening and i'm a black dude right like Mm -hmm. things are happening with you know with covid and in a black lives matter and you know this negativity it took it, it i don't think about it as often because you know Although in, in in independent game development is different than you know corporate long you know triple A game development right because we're we're left to our own devices, but we're so tight knit that I don't think about certain aspects of that stuff unless someone brings it up mm-hmm. and something crazy hits. So I'm like, oh shit, this stuff is happening, and now I have to take myself out because I never I don't think about it that often because we're all dealing with the same struggle you know um and and so uh that's what we want to help you know help out with but i think what's really interesting you brought up the greg connection um is and i knew (laughs) i knew him from ign right when he was like i think he was there a couple years before we started right but like i would see him at ign while we were at ign and then we continued and then they flipped off you know to 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 the whole video team basically, you know, flipped off to do, um, uh, to do kind of funny. And it was like, Oh, that we maintain those relationships. So we're always hitting up like, Hey, Greg, you know, you want to, you want to be a host of the stream that we're doing for these few hours. And they were like, Oh, we can't this time or we can this time. And, and last year at E3, we had this really dope space and they were doing their second year of, uh, the kind of funny showcase. And I was like, Hey, how about we do this collaboration where, we had this. We had a huge space. It's really cool space during E3, and we're like, "How about we give you a whole room, and we'll work with you on getting the games that you guys were showcasing mm-hmm. in in that space and doing the same treatment that we do the developers that we're working with." And there's a crossover anyway because the games, like you know, 
some of the games that were on the show on their showcase were also going to be at the event or, or or already signed up at the event. So that yeah, there's definitely a connection there. This is a small world. And gosh, that is so nice to hear because I think oftentimes for gamers on the other side of of this, and you know, from, from my perspective and from many others. We don't get to see all that. You know, we don't get to see the moments of, of support and helpfulness and the connections. Like, that's that's really nice. I guess it's just, it's just heartwarming to hear. And and let's bring it to 2020, a difficult year health-wise, COVID, uh, in the United States and now around the world. Black Lives Matter is making a huge impact on the gaming industry in, in I would argue, a very positive way. Uh, but there's a lot of adaptability that is required from – you know, triple A, double A, and down to the indie space. And you 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 formed or created or or in some way, shape, or form, Gorilla Collective came to be uh, in combination in, in in working with kinda funny. Uh, tell me that story and then I have a listener question as well to go in. Tell me Gorilla Collective what it what it is or was at this point, because you guys had a, your three day event last week. And uh, let's talk Gorilla Collective specifically. Yeah, so the Gorilla Collective, um, it, you know, it came from the evolution of what we've already been doing with the mix, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it has a way cool name, I might add. Way cool name. Oh, thank you. Thanks. <laughs> I have no yeah. idea what it is, but I thought it was so cool. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people thought that. So I can tell you that. I mean, this is exclusive. Like, I don't think we even talked about this before, but it was inter- – the whole the whole thing was interesting. So – so basically, like I was saying, we've been doing live shows and and working out live events uh, for the past four years. But it just so happens that they were only like set up live for those particular showcases that we were doing. And we always wanted that component because we wanted to make sure that we got the most exposure for the developers as possible. So, for instance, when we do our GDC We'll be in the morning. We're at GameSpot. We work with GameSpot on a live stream. We'll have seven games there. Then we'll possibly work with IGN and work with the developers that are in our showcase to get them, you know, airtime on IGN. And then we'll have we'll work with Twitch to get front page support to have seven to eight games live at our event. Right. So we try to spread it out over that day or over the next few days. So we've been planning these, you know, scheduling of you know these uh, live. Uh, video productions for a while and so co like we had like a b- expansive amount of things that we were going to accomplish during gdc one of them with which was um it was our regular showcase with the live stream and GameSpot, and then we always team we're we've been teaming up with raw fury we love raw fury they're, they're like those are our brothers too yeah well, um, west of dead is one that's on my radar right now i'm so stoked they're great <laughs> yeah and um and then the the other thing the uh, and then we had we also were were teaming up with Intel for this big show floor at a sixty by sixty space where we're gonna have a bunch of developers and then it all caved in last minute like we were holding out to the last minute and it, this whole shutdown happened and I'm in the Bay Area and it hit really hard in the Bay Area mm-hmm. you know so it it literally shut down that Friday when we were we had to make our decision like we're not gonna go ahead and and. We actually had to make it the Thursday, and then the fr- and then that Friday was when GDC said either it was that no, it was Friday. We had to make the decision and call it off. That Monday, GDC said we're shutting down, and so we had to pivot twice. What are we gonna do? 
you know, and all of these amazing, the camaraderie is great. There was like, uh, you know, there was a, a alternate to GDC and like all these folks were trying to figure it out. People are still flying out. And we're like, how about we just, we transform this into a three day event. Right. And so what we did was we work with Twitch and Twitch has always been really, really amazing and supportive. Um, and we figured out a way that we could do this, you know, do a three day event and we set it up. We set up all of, all of the developers. We, um, rented out a studio, like a professional studio. And we ended up doing three, three days, two hours, the first day, four hours, the next two days. And it went on pretty much without a hitch. And, uh, I was hosting co-hosted by, uh, my friend, Alex Wilmer, or Wilmer sounds. Um, and it went really great. So that being said, other people were contacting us and I was like, let, you know, big E3 is one of our biggest events because the reason being is like, you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, the press, you know, they get kind of tired of the AAA stuff. They want to see some fresh stuff. And we have a really, really cool event for that. So people love to to whine and go to that, you know, before they see, go back to the the show floor and that type of thing. So we were like, we're going to do a live event. We were putting the pieces together and like figuring out how we're going to get sponsorship and this kind of thing. And then, you know, uh, Raw Fury, we, we were having a conversation with them already. And they were like, Hey, we were thinking about doing this thing. And we were like, yeah, well, we're already kind of. thinking about the same thing. So we, they were like, how about we join forces? We have a bunch of publishers and developers already like, you know, on the Slack channel, we're already communicating and let's get, how about you guys get involved and then you produce it. Right. So we ended up communicating and having these like smaller meetings and we're like, hell yeah, let's, let's make this happen. And that's kind of where, it, that's where it started. And then, um, and, and, and it was, say it, they, they've got, Publishers, I mean, I'm looking at just just the list here. We're seeing Paradox and Rebellion and Humble, uh, Eleven Bits in there, Sega Sega's in there, Thunderful. Like these are names that people know, even outside of the indie space. Yeah, so it, that's yeah, and that was it snowballed really because all these folks we've worked with before, like they've been our you know Eleven Bits, you know, been a partner. We've done parties with with uh, Good Shepherd and. Humble, we have a like I said, you know, John Polson runs, you know, publishing at Humble Bundle, and 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 even from IGN, you know, the co-founder, with you know, we were sitting next to each other, so like we had these long ter- these long relationships, but it, it just snowballed into this really really great idea. Initially, it was it was going to be called Indie Games Live um, because it was just focused on indie game content, and and um, we were going to put this whole production together and that kind of thing. And then, you know, Larian jumped on board and they were like, we want to do this independently. We want to, we don't want to be beholden to any particular, you know, sh- you know, show like PC, like the PC gamer show, like that kind of thing. You know, we want to roll with you guys and make this thing bigger. And then that's where Rebellion came in. That's where Paradox came in. That's where uh, Funcom came in and like the bigger publishers. And then we were like, okay, this is not Indie Games Live anymore. So we had to completely cut that and then we had to name it something else and that's kind of where the gorilla collective came from and we were trying to find we we're trying to find a, a name that didn't sound too uh, you know uh too much of a military <laughs> you know situation right. uh, but and so that's where the collective artistic point of view is but the other thing is it is we want it to be independent and that was the biggest thing was uh, regardless of the size of the developers these guys are still 
literally independent. Like, you know what I mean? They aren't EAs. They aren't, you know, these, these large Activision, these larger companies. And although they may be trade, some of them may be publicly traded, they're still, they still can, you know, adhere to their own vision. And so that's where it really was a, uh, you know, kind of a win-win. And it, again, it just snowballed and we, and we were like, okay, so how, you know, although I'm, you know, comfortable with hosting, who would be a great host and would b- bring notoriety to it. And, and as a friend of ours, and we reached out to kind of funny, we were like, we're doing this thing. It's, you know, we didn't have the name concrete yet because we were still in between getting all of these larger developers slash publishers on board. But, you know, we talked to kind of funny and, and, and we told them the idea and we've collaborated with them before and they were like, yeah, let's do this, you know? And so that's how and we Greg's got hosted them. a thing or two in his day. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So it was just a perfect, you know, storm and combination of, uh, you know, folks who want, who are interested, you know, we've done this before we work with, we work with most of the people in this community. And so they trusted us, mm-hmm. you know, in producing this, this show. And, uh, it just really, really came together organically. That's brilliant. And so from June 13th through June 15th, across three shows, uh, you guys had, had, I think, ninety games. Roughly ninety games were shown. Is that is that is my math right on that one? Yeah, it was around ninety games. Yep. And and I was seeing games of all types. I mean, certainly certainly indie in every way. But I was seeing stuff like West of Dead that I mentioned. Your gun looked really cool. And then then I'm seeing like dating simulators for a boyfriend. And then I'm seeing uh, stuff where you're you're flying around as a bird. It was it was insanity in the coolest way and i would imagine one of the difficulties there is spotlighting and giving those people the time uh and and finding out what goes where what goes in the right order pacing tell me the logistics about creating a show that as indie as it is it doesn't sound small anymore yeah i mean uh without getting too granular it 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 took a lot of work like we we worked crazy hours, you know, 12, 13-hour days, some, you know, uh, we were up starting, all night. Starting when, if you don't mind my asking, like, take me, when does Gorilla Collective begin that process? We started everything in April. From April uh, to June, you put this together. Wow, okay, all right. Yeah, so it was really rapid fire, and, and, and that's where experience comes into play, right? Like, we've been doing these events, and although it's different, the curation process and communicating with developers, we have a pipeline that we've developed over years to make that happen, right? And so that's and that's what makes it a lot, you know, a lot smoother. Uh, and also the independence factor helps. We don't have like you, you, there's a th- you know there's a ton of showcases now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're when you're communicating with you know larger um, like media outlets, they have you know they have uh, um, corporate they have to deal with they have red tape and all that stuff but since we're doing our our own since we're like you know left to to make the decisions ourselves with a small committee we were able to push forward fast but yeah it it, it's it's like a touch it's like a uh strategic um it's like tetris Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's totally like Tetris. Like, where does this fit in? How does this fit with the other game? How does, you know, why, where are we going to put this to keep the show 
interesting. Um, did a developer drop out? Is this? Do they have a newer trailer? Oh, this it's like putting out fires and and um, being creative with what we're doing and and reshooting. Like you know, I had to reshoot. I basically we set up a studio this whole time during this time. Like kind of funny has a studio, but we set up a studio at Wilmer Sound. Uh, which is my friend, you know, I have an office and then he, he does sound for, for video games and Netflix shows. One of my, one of my best friends down the street and I were like, he's been doing this stuff with me. And so, um, we are like, Hey, let's, we're like plotting, let's set up a studio in here. So during that time we were setting up actually a studio, you know, a video studio, like a legit one. And when the, the, you know, um, George Floyd got shot and, and, and we're in the midst of all of that because we're in Berkeley and we're in Oakland and in San Francisco. And that's, you know, that's a hotbed for, for activism, of course. Mm-hmm. So, you know, down the street, like there's peaceful protests. And then at the same time that, that we, you know, it, it, it turned into some civil uh, distress or, uh, I unrest. can't even civil unrest. unrest. That's a very polite way of saying, and I understand what you're saying. I understand. Yeah, exactly. It got, it, you know, it got kind of crazy, but, um, uh, so then I was, we had, I had to reshoot, you know, I had to, it was very important to me and to the, the folks in the guerrilla collective that we were sensitive upon, you know, about, you know, what was going on and me in particular, of course. And so we ended up, I ended up shooting the, um, uh, the opening for that, you know, and and for and, listeners that don't know, opening monologue was you talking about Black Lives Matter, uh, and, and the, the relevance there. Yeah, exactly, and, and that was important. And then we basically, uh, due to you know PlayStation pushing their their show out a week and and some other factors, we ended up deciding to push our show back a week, and then um, and we ended up doing. Black Voices in Gaming the week that we were supposed to have the Guerrilla Collective, uh, which was which was put together very last minute, but it was an amazing showcase of black, you know, uh, um, black developers. Some with stories that I didn't even know, and I know all these guys, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that being said, it's just you know, I don't even know where I was going with this, but <laughs> um, it's insightful much- though, and and it's relevant. It's scary and. Uh, take me logistically then if, if, you know, George Floyd's, uh, death occurs, you choose to put the monologue in there. You have to move dates as many of the bigger companies are doing. Was there a difficult conversation? Let me really reword that because that, that might connotatively come out strange. You have to speak with people that are not all in the United States that might be detached from the situation. Yeah. Tell me about that process. No, that is extremely interesting, and uh, most uh, th- this this is the thing that was like very uh, that I was pissed off about in, in the industry, and that I was struggling with, you know, just due to my ethnicity and, and things going on. Is that there was a lot of people, and, and just inside conversations that I had with these folks before they made statements, and the the problem i had with some of it was that people were making you know political statements without it being a genuine genuinely from the heart and what they actually had intended you know what i mean mm-hmm. so they would push things back because it was a financial decision or that type of thing and then they would come out and they would have like a, a, a image 
you know, a, a picture of, you know, their, their, uh, a paragraph of what, you know, that Black Lives Matter and all this stuff, right? And So it felt disingenuous. It was very disingenuous, and and like I'm not even gonna say. Obviously, I'm not gonna name any names or whatever. But it's just I'm like it's like disheartening because I'm in the middle of this industry. But the thing about what we were doing was from the get go, the Guerrilla Collective was a celebration of of developers from different cultures, ethnicities, backgrounds, and all over the world. Like we had people from Brazil, Japan, uh, you know, Peru. And, you know, Croatia, all over the world, right? And so it was a celebration of that and and us coming together to showcase um, just amazing content and and show that we are strong during COVID initially. We are stronger together, right? And that we can pull something off uh, even with these overwhelmingly, you know, um, harrowing circumstances. I'm being very dramatic, but... Do you know what I'm saying, right? It's like you're not being dramatic at all. <laughs> this yeah, is so, very real. Yeah, yeah, and so when when the uh, you know, and it, it didn't start with George Floyd, but it, that that what what ignited the fire for for uh, everything happening. Yeah, the everyone was like, we want to help. Like we understand um, what's going on, and and how what can we say, you know? And and to be fair, I think a lot of you know, different companies that I initially were like, what, what the hell are you guys doing? They are just trying to help, but they didn't communicate with the, you know, with the, uh, the folks that mattered. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but this thing, this thing was when we were communicating with folks from Europe and from different countries that don't have the same outlook and, and look, I've traveled the world with the mix, right? Like Mm -hmm. to tons of different countries and, Honestly, when you go to different countries that, you know, uh, you know, racism isn't the same. They don't view it the same way. And so in some reason, in in some aspects, it's more of a classism type thing. Right. And and so they don't they don't necessarily understand, but they understand that it wasn't just so they were like those those conversations definitely came up. And I, you know, being that, you know, and. And I don't want to like bring this into a political thing, but being that there's only like three percent folks in the industry um, that are black, it's like now I have to, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I have to be the the spokesman for this, you know, this, this ethnicity, you know, uh, just because they they need someone else to communicate with. Um, but it was a great conversation, and it was they were very understanding, and they were like. What can we do that's positive that makes sense and it isn't just a knee jerk reaction because we want to we want the optics to look good and everyone was very and initially it wasn't even you know it, it was something that I was thinking about but David Martinez you know one of the co founders of Raw Fury he he came over to the office and was like hey I got this idea because we were really struggling with the whole getting pushed back and not re- not really believing that we should getting be pushing it back because we felt that it was a good it was a good thing to share that we are still staying strong and and showing you know showing our games uh, because they're so diverse but he was like hey what about what if we did something where we showcase black developers and I was thinking exactly the same thing so 
it's not, we're not just being absent from the conversation. We're not just pushing our show back like everyone else. We're actually adding some substance that people can go back and look into and, and see what these other developers have to deal with, you know? Um, and so, yeah, it was, it, everyone was very, very supportive. And it's really interesting to see internationally what, what uh, what other people's perspective of this situation is and it was very positive um, i have a thousand questions for you here uh, but let me ask you a very simple one do you think the industry heard the call for change i think we saw uh on the civil rights level gender equality has been a big conversation in the past few years but do you think that with this movement with black lives matter with uh, so many companies trying to take note that uh, people of color are, are not being equally represented in games. Do you think it's going to get better? Will it improve? Is this the wake-up call that they needed, or is there something else? I think there's a, there's a just there's just a sy- uh, systemic issue, you know, integrated within this, the system, and I don't think it was necessarily created to put people down. I think it's just a matter of who's making games and who decided to make games in, in the first place, right? I mean, if you have, you know, uh, a game company that was made from, like, 21-year-old white game developers, you know, and they wanted to have, like, do a bunch of shooters, then who are you going to hire? You're going to hire your friends, and, and a lot of times those friends look like you, right? So I don't think it's like negative. It's necessarily a negative thing, but I think the thing is there needs to be awareness of uh, that other voices need to be heard. And when people are funding projects or hiring executives, if they want to reach other these 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 other voices or, or they they want to reach these other uh, demographics and, and things like that, then they need to start legitimately hiring people of color to be able to uh, create things from their perspective and reach that audience, you know? And, and I think that's the the problem um, or that's the challenge. And a lot of these folks, like these bigger companies have the funds to do that. But again, there's, there's a lot of knee jerk reactions where like, we're just going to create a fund and we're going to say black lives matter but it, it needs to be a long. There needs to be a long term solution, and the thing that that is a little bit, um, I, I don't know. It's it's just more annoying than than anything else. Is that like they when folks put together these funds or uh, these programs, they don't communicate with the people that, like I said earlier, that that are affected by it. Right. So then you get into this weird vortex of now black developers are begging for cash from, you know, a white dude, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Who is holding this bucket of cash, but that's not what we need. Like it's that's not what people accidental, accidental systemic problem all over again. Yeah. But the thing is there, the intentions are good, but then you have to actually think about it. Like you can't just you don't just solve things through band you know you can't just you, you know uh, heal a, a band aid through uh, heal a gun wound with a band aid right yeah. it's like you have to have a committee of pe- people of color to help 
get those funds out there, right, to, to the people who deserve it. But the problem there is there's no executives in power that are also uh, people of color or black to, that are in the right position mm-hmm. that can help, you know, help uh, distribute those funds wisely in order to k- continue the cycle of, of uh, you know, uh, a, a prosperous, like, you know, black develop development based community or uh, developers um, or, you know, any other, any people of color. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's a weird thing because the other, the other, um, you know, kind of aspect of that is then you have folks. I mean, to me, it's like, look, you get, you have all of these smart, amazing developers. If they are able to bring, you know, uh, be brought up. Right. And one of the things that, uh, one of the developers said um, on the stream was like, we're not looking for a handout. We're looking for a hand up. Right. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, then they're going to pull other people up and it's going to be beneficial to everyone. Right. It's going to be like, say we're, you know, and I know Xbox is, you know, has a, a component in what they're doing that they've had this for a while where they're trying to get, you know, more people of color mm-hmm. um, deals and that kind of thing on the back end without yeah. like really they have talking about Latinx and gaming, blacks and gaming, women and gaming. Like they have like, Separate initiatives for each category. If I a category of underrepresented underrepresentation, if I if I remember that correctly. Yeah, exactly. And I think the thing is, well, I mean, th- there's, and I don't want to talk about them too much, but but you know, in these because de- because you know these companies have all these different com- departments and they don't all talk to each other. You know what sure, I mean? So sure, it, it's sure. a complicated thing. So there is that, right, where they have funds for events, and those are women in gaming, that kind of thing. But then they have other funds where it's like, you know, we are targeting uh, – not targeting, that's the wrong term. But, you know, we're helping to provide developers of color funds for their next project, like that kind of thing. But if there's due diligence there to communicate with developers that – aren't just thinking about one game and they're thinking about their next five years or their next, you know, three games and what they're doing for the community. That's the systematic approach that I think that would be helpful. This is just my opinion because then those people are going to be pulling people up and helping others that have that same pedigree. And that's what we need. We need excellent games from those developers, not just, uh, and this is what happens is like they need, because everyone's underrepresented or some of these folks are underrepresented, they're just quickly trying to snap out. Oh, here's a black developer or here's a, you know, uh, here's someone from the LGBTQ community or here's a woman game, uh, game developer, you know, and they boost them up, but don't really, you know, um, they don't take the time to actually like, okay, these are the ones that, that will help, keep this moving forward you know what i mean I do. And I, that way we run I, into similar uh concerns in education as well i understand exactly what you mean and i don't want to sound negative towards any of those things but it's just you know it, again it's just the the knee-jerk reaction is, sure. is what we to to not happen well, I've, I've had you for a while, but I do have two listener questions that I want to, to let them get in. One of them coming from uh, uh, Mr. Joseph Moran, who hosts his own podcast called The Trophy Room. He's a fan of yours uh, quite a bit, actually. Uh, 
He says, we've seen plenty of digital showcases pop up over the past few months. What made uh, Guerrilla Collective different? And with E3 and Limbo, where do you see Guerrilla Collective going in the years to come? Um, I think what I would say about it different is it's extremely organic, right? Mm -hmm. Um, These are developers for developers, publishers who love the community, love games, and we're all pushing ourselves to to make something excellent happen, right? To make something amazing happen. And you know, we're we weren't funded by any like one big organization. We had some amazing partners, you know, such you know, such as, you know, ID at Xbox were freaking amazing working with us. And then, you know, GameSpot and IGN and, you know, Mixer again, you know, that's Xbox, um, Twitch and, and all these folks that supported us, it wouldn't have got out if it wasn't for that. But, it, you know, obviously we provided a, amazing content. Um, but, yeah, it's just the the love of games, the love of development, and the love of our culture. I, I, I don't just call it – it's not just a community. To me, gaming and game development is it's a culture, you know? Like we live it, we breathe it, we bleed it. You know what I mean? We eat it in that <laughs> – but yeah, so that's what I think. And there's other ones that are that you know that will have that that approach. But I do feel we were the first out the gate to have that you know kind of feeling. And in the future, this is going to continue. Like from the momentum that we gathered from this first event, and then the strength that we have together working with each other, um, we're going to definitely do this in the future. That's fantastic to hear. The the other question had to do with ID at Xbox. Uh, can you because the the majority of this audience is is Xbox focused. Uh, what was the process like working with ID at Xbox? We've worked with ID at Xbox Xbox for years. Like we know, you know, the, their team is amazing. Chris Charla is he is such a great curator. He's a game taster. You know, you know mm-hmm. what I mean. Uh, they really care about their content. They really care about the developers. They really care about the games. And so working with them has been great. You know, um, everything lined up. We, we had a few of the games in the showcase initially anyway. Like if you, if you look back at the, the VOD, you could see, or the V on demand, you could see, um, uh, we had a, a, a couple of the games there. Um, but yeah, they, they're amazing. They're, they're really good at what they do. And, and we, you know, we connect with them even when it doesn't have to do with showcases, you know. I mean, that's how that, you know, our, the, the community slash culture is, you know. So, yeah, we'll definitely be working with them in the future. Was there anything particular about ID at Xbox? Or no, was it was it... just a general question they wrote in asking, um, you know, just what it was like working with them. So they were just excited to see ID at Xbox there. They were, we saw that they were a gold sponsor there. And then to have the list of, of people that you guys worked with and then have ID Xbox with that was just exciting, I think, for listeners. Yeah, I mean, it was a, I mean, to go a little bit deeper, I guess, in the technical, uh, you know, in regards to the technical aspect of it, it was like, yeah, we had a conversation and we were like, what are you guys trying to do? And it was, it, a lot of folks, including them, are like, you know, there's no E3, you know, how are we going to get these awesome indie games out there? And we're, you know, we explain our philosophy of, you know, 
being stronger together and, and working together to, to create these bonds and show, show the world. And they were like, this is exactly what we want to do. We want to get this out there grassroots. And the most interesting aspect of it, and this is with most of the, the, the bigger sponsors that we work with is they don't necessarily want a big flag saying ID at Xbox, right? Mm -hmm. They, at the end of the day, they want the games that they are, they are supporting to be, exposed so that was a big component and that was a big part of our conversation was you know we you know we don't have need to have this crazy you know extravaganza of id and xbox everywhere the games need to speak for themselves for this how can we make this happen and you know and move forward you know um so that was it that was real that's really cool to hear from people in the you know uh uh, publishers and, and platform holders in the community. Well, Justin Woodward, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. You you gave me far more of your time than I was expecting, and I'm so appreciative of it for the insight, for the the thoughtfulness uh, of all the topics we covered, man. Thank you for, for joining me today, man. Yeah, thank you. It was, it was great. And congratulations on Gorilla Collective. And people can go back and find those on VOD in a number of places because that's how I was able to consume it if I missed it live. I do want to say, yeah, you know, this was not just, you know, although, you know, the mix did a lot of the production, it could not have happened without everyone involved and the developers and publishers and partners and all that stuff. It's it all comes together. And I think that's what made that great. And and, and what also makes what we do, you know, as the mix and myself as a developer, it, it keeps me in love with this culture and this community is is just all the love we get you know and and that we have for each other and, and communicating so yeah and if people want to express uh more interest and show some of that love to you guys where can they find you and where can they find more content uh that you guys work on uh yeah so on twitter um uh, at indie exchange um the media indie com. we have a number of things that we're going to be pushing out we're going to be doing regular shows uh, more often coming up since we have a studio now. Um, and then Gorilla Collective is at Gorilla Collect because <laughs> there were too many characters mm -hmm. um, or Collective.com. So there's going to be more stuff from Gorilla Collective. Um, not sure how often, but we're going to determine that hopefully more. But yeah, uh, the mix. And then, yeah. Oh, I didn't mention that. Yeah, we the game that I've been working on is the is the uh, Jay and Silent Bob. That's our game. No way, that's cool. Yeah, and which we, yeah, we debuted the trailer on the Gorilla Collective, which was pretty awesome. 